It's the Fun to Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. On today's show, part two of our conversation with sculptor and visual artist Al Farrow. But once I switched over to using real guns and real bullets and real human bones, people really started to take notice. You know, it's like people would come up to me at an opening and say, did these guns really kill people? And I'd say, absolutely, absolutely. And then having real human bones. I mean, if you use plastic bones, who's gonna be afraid of a plastic model? Greetings and welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. On today's show, the second and final part of an interview with sculptor and visual artist Al Farrow. Before we get there, let me say that you can find the Fun to Know podcast at SoundCloud, its address being soundcloud.com backslash fun to know with the numeral two. Also, look for pictures and more about our guest on the Fun to Know podcast page on Facebook where you can send us a message and let us know what you like. We're also on Twitter, just a little bit, at fun to know Podcast at Twitter. I have a flurry of new interviews scheduled for this new year. I'm looking forward to presenting a fresh batch of conversations. Now on to part two of the semi-epic interview I did with Al Farrow. Al is a sculptor and visual artist out of the San Rafael area, and as I mentioned in the last show, he is also my wife's uncle. When my wife and I first announced we were getting married, Lots of older couples chimed in with their philosophies on a good marriage. Al gave us a very specific piece of advice that always stuck with me, though. He said, make sure you really stop and make time to make real contact each day. Make sure you spend time every day looking each other in the eye. Good, practical, sensible, and easy-to-remember advice for relationships. In the first half of our interview, Al talked about growing up one of six boys in a working-class household in Brooklyn, moving to the San Francisco Bay Area during the Summer of Love and slowly finding himself as a sculptor, ultimately casting in bronze a series of dancers working and of beggars. In the second half, Al talks about the rising political content in his work that sometimes hampered him commercially, and finally his breakthrough in his 60s with an ambitious series of religious reliquaries made of bullets, gun parts, and bones. As we rejoin the conversation here, Al talks about work inspired by the Greek myth of Icarus and the folly of flying too close to the sun. Again, I'd invite you to head on over to alfarrow.com, Farrow being spelled F-A-R-R-O-W, and look at Al's stunning collection of work there. Now, here I am back with Al on the occasional buzzing and whirring sounds of an art studio at work. And then I started uh, developing my African series. No, my Icarus series came before that. Okay. And that, for me, had to do with the abuse of flight. Mm-hmm. So I started with um, 
the mythology of flight of Daedalus and Icarus, and do you want to give us the basic story of uh, Daedalus and Icarus? Or? Well, basically, uh, it's a complicated story because most people don't realize that most of those Greek mythologies, from the Minotaur to Icarus, to, are all interrelated. They're yeah. all one big story, and so basically, Daedalus was the inventor of flight, the wings. But he, in history, or in mythology, however you want to look at it, is credited with many, many, many inventions. And uh, he was a great inventor in Athens. Now, King Minos, which I believe was Crete, uh, hired him. But he was trying to get escape from Athens because he had murdered a nephew who there was a dispute over who invented the hammer. (laughs) And he ended up killing the nephew who claimed to have invented anyway he had to get out of town because he was going to be you know jailed so he took his son and they ran off to crete king minos took him in because he wanted somebody brilliant to design the labyrinth to house the minotaur which was an embarrassment because zeus had impregnated his wife in the form of a bull, so we had the minotaur with a bull head and a human body. That's just part of the convoluted story. the context story. of yeah. how it all comes together. Okay, there. so basically, uh, at some point, King Minos got pissed off at Daedalus and threw him and his son into the labyrinth to be consumed by the minotaur. Well, they had to escape, and so he came up with the concept of flight. Now, I think, in my research of mythology and Greek mythology, I, I and some scholars think this, that this invention of flight, flight has a lot of meanings. He was in flight, meaning trying to escape. Yeah. And some people equate that story to the invention of the sail, where the, the um, minions of King Minos who were chasing him were rowing, and he had a sail, and he flew across the water. So some scholars lean in that direction, others not. Anyway, as stories change being told again and again, you know, over time, they, they evolve. And so it soon became he flew. Anyway, I wanted to take the whole concept of flight, which has been mankind's dream since they recognized birds fly and they don't. And everyone had some fantasy to fly. And, and so I started with a sculpture of Icarus, which I because of my experience with dancers, you see, everything has a purpose. I really got the figure down when I was sculpting dancers. And so I could really use the figure expressively. And even my uh, Icarus series has a very dancerly quality because they're flying, they're moving, but I have to have them grounded because you can't suspend a heavy piece of bronze with (laughs) nothing to support it. So you either hang them or you support them from below. So I came up with these devices of body positions where just the toes touched something, and it's so they're very dynamic. It can only. But how tall are they? Um, They were not much bigger than the dancer series. The figures were twelve to fifteen inches high or something. Inches, twelve inches, like that. Mm -hmm. Um, The wing spread might be two feet, but that's about as big as they got. Anyway, I was able to uh, really do expressive figures. This. So I started with uh, Icarus flying, and the myth is, you know, he flew t- too close to the sun, his, the wax melted in his wings, and he fell to his death. So the second sculpture I did was Daedalus 
seeing his son fall, reaching, you know, where he, he's far away, he can't help him. But he's got his wings and what, and his hands underneath his hands just reaching out to his son, and he's got half a death mask. So his face is visible, but half his face is covered with a mask of death. Whereas Icarus had the full death mask yeah. over his face. Well, here you're also a you're also a, in a father and son relationship at this Absolutely. time. You're sculpting one, yeah. Yeah, and um, yeah, you you're really protective. Yeah, and you really have that emotional attachment. You know, you would do anything to save your kid. Anyway, so that was the first two. Then the third one was, um, I think this was in the same time as Star Wars had just came out. And so I got a model of the X-Wing fighter, and I had this guy running down a runway about to take off with the X-Wing fighter on his back and holding a bomb in each hand. And so that was the next one. And then I did the SR-71 spy plane on the back of Icarus at a dynamic angle, and he's got a heart on that just reflects the... Um, the long fuselage yeah. and its two engines being the testicles, and I mean it's a it's a beautiful uh, juxtaposition. Yeah. Um, and so then, so this the whole series kept evolving and becoming more outrageous. You know, I did one of uh, Icarus, and I put him in World War Two pilot headgear with headphones and you know and sort of moving away from classical sculpture having these these modern uh, yeah. you know things in, incorporated with the bronze and I was playing with technique in the foundry too so I was burning out plastic models along with the wax figures and replicating it all in bronze and getting extraordinarily good results accurate down to the tiny rivets on the model airplanes they cast beautifully I, I had to invent techniques to do this but it I was really able to pull off some, some real coups in terms of casting. Mm. Um, it, the series ended with Icarus crucified. And I had, as a, cru as a cross, I used the B-29, the Enola Gay, um, which has a perfect cross. The wings are 90 degrees <clears throat> to the fuselage. The Enola Gay, of course, <coughs> dropping the atomic bomb on yeah. Japan. Yeah. And so I, I had uh, a Christ figure, a Christ-like figure um, and one of my favorite uh, crucified Christ paintings in history is Grunwald's uh, triptych mm -hmm. and it's a real angst ridden Christ figure on in his crucifixion yeah. and his hands are expressively curled like gnarly roots and I mean, just really you feel the pain and I modeled my Christ-like figure after Grunwald's depiction of Christ. But I made him look like Woody Allen. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know whether to get into the, uh, you know, the fact that you're not Catholic or... <laughs> well, no, you know, religions are a very important part of conflict yeah. all through history. And so, mm -hmm. I mean, so this, it always bothered me that people forget Christ was a Jew and he wasn't a Christian and he wasn't mm -hmm. trying to be a different religion. He was... Trying to give a pure vision of Judaism to his flock and, and other people created whatever around him. Yeah. But I just wanted, for my own personal satisfaction, to make him look very Jewish. And then, to me, Woody Allen was the quintessential 
you know, Jewish face. And so Superstar. I, <laughs> so I put Woody Allen's face, big glass. You know, I had his pilot's headgear on, the leather cap, and but I made sure the glasses looked like Woody Allen's big glasses from that era, you know, and. Nobody notices. <laughs> That's the irony. Is nobody picks it up. It's like I did this intentional. Anyway, so I, I needed to do that. I, I I always have layers in my work. Some are humorous, like this one. Others are very serious. But I like to layer things with historical references and uh, religious history, art history, uh, regular history you learn in school. I like to layer things in, and and there's a multiple layers of, of experience in the work that will either be noticed or not but for those who notice it they either get their chuckle or their little nod of recognition mm -hmm. and whatever so this is a twist in style how was how was this more uh, specific political work uh, accepted or well, it certainly or pleased me mm -hmm. i felt really proud and for me i felt like okay you could take these things and throw them in the ocean and i'll pull them out in two thousand years and clean them up and uh, you'll still be able to interpret these things as a reflection of these times as we might when we interpret ancient cultures we dig up. Mm -hmm. And so I recognized that my bronze was going to last and that my point of view was made. How it would be interpreted is another story, but you can do that with words, sound, or any other art form and you never guarantee the interpretation from the receiving end, but sure. you certainly can guarantee the longevity. And unless, you know, they get melted down like the Germans did to a lot of good art, um, you know, if they don't get melted down, they're going to last through time for yeah, thousands yeah. of years. And so that I felt really good that my point of view was made, and it's at least it's put out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could put out film, book, sound, and when they dig up this culture, they may not have the means to interpret those yeah they might not have a machine that could play that tape or that disc or whatever form yeah. the information took you're really going back to the the ancient communication yes to, to be working in metal like that and that gave me a really deep pleasure knowing this and still does now i've moved on and i'm not working in as permanent materials as i was but at least that body of work will last, you know, yeah. my African series and my Icarus series, stuff like that. So it really made me feel good. In terms of how it was received, shoot, difficult. Most people couldn't live with it. <laughs> so I didn't sell very readily at all. And at the time, uh, I remember having an opening in San Francisco at the Gregory Ghent Gallery, and uh, one of his major collectors took him aside at the opening and said, you shouldn't show this guy. This guy is dangerous. I'll bet he's part of the Symbionese Liberation Army. <laughs> this was right around the time where Patty Hearst was yes. uh, kidnapped. and but The so SLA, the, the yeah. radicals, yes. So here I was accused of being a member because I showed Africans with guns, yeah. you know. SLA sympathizer Al Farrow's new work right. has arrived. <laughs> so, you know, I think nothing scares the white male more than a naked black guy yeah. with a gun. Yeah, yeah. And I had naked black guys with guns. And so, you know, 
right. tab- taboo image in our culture. That's how I was received. Yeah. <laughs> you received I, I like a naked sell. black man with a gun. Yeah, I did not sell very many sculptures. And it took me quite a long time till some of them got collected up, um, up to 20 years to sell some of those. Uh, the, the San Francisco Museum has uh, one of your pieces. Uh, I know. Well, they have the, the big Gothic cathedral I made. Okay. But um, a collector a couple of years ago who recently died, he, he donated one of my bronzes, I believe, the voodoo guy. The, that's called African Man Number no. 5. He, I think they own that, but they've never shown it. Yeah. They also own one of my membrane bowls. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if they show it either. They did have it on exhibit for a while. But anyway, they yeah, they have it, but... <laughs> it's in their holdings. There you go. But yeah, a lot of my work was not that saleable. And I think it disturbed people. And they just didn't want to own it or live with it. Yeah. Ultimately, you know, when things are more past, and as the culture caught up mm-hmm. to what was being expressed. Because when I was involved with Africa for the African series, I mean, it all grew out of my involvement with the civil rights movement. But at the same time, uh, black people around the world, dark-skinned people around the world, are treated badly and and treat each other badly. And you, you can go to places like the Philippines, and they want skin lightening cream, and the darker peoples are looked down upon because they're dark. And the same is still true in Africa. It was only in recent years I heard somebody sort of split the world between... Uh, not the you know the West and Europe or, or, or the West and the East and everything, but but from the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere, and that really clarified things in a way that the the Northern Hemisphere in general has you know yeah. uh, taken control of the Southern Hemisphere in a lot of ways. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's really interesting to look at um, historically, but if you look at some of these uh, 19th century books, they flat out straight say these are inferior peoples. These are, you know, they don't have mental development like, like white people. I mean, it's, the Eurocentric yeah. approach was and, and the, the, absolutely the, disgusting. The white man's burden, how it's really yeah. our job to help. Uh, but for some reason, it rubbed off on the indigenous peoples themselves. Sure. And they have a prejudice within the community of dark versus light. Mm-hmm. And with the exception of people like black Muslims who, who specifically, you know, embrace black pride... I'm just talking about not a political movement who's trying to fight that concept, but really the general acceptance of the Eurocentric concept. Hey, you're darker than me. I'm better than you. You yeah. know, I mean, that's like fucking insane. But it's still true. And and Africa consumes enormous amounts of skin lightening creams. Today, yeah. you would think with all the pol- political awareness, social awareness, um, psychological awareness, you know, in terms of how conceptually we've really developed in our understandings mm-hmm. of how things work and how people's minds work. Yeah. You would think that would reverse, but it's still, still, still prevalent. Yeah, a, a very prevalent. Thing. I think I was first aware of it as a teenager from seeing a <clears throat> film of the play a Soldier's Story about a uh, murder that happens at a, in the black squadron at a, at, a, at a boot camp and it all came down to uh, interracial prejudice against you know the color of sk- uh, the, the darkness yeah. of skin yeah and when you really get down to it it, it it is the most meaningless concept because we're just all the same underneath yeah we, we're yeah. all skeletons you know we're all do just we, a bunch we re- of bones and muscles 
And uh, do we really want our character to be de- be defined by how close our ancestors grew up to the equator? True. And you know what? It takes about. I read this in some journal years ago. It could be true or not, but they said that it would take about ten thousand years if you took Africans and put them in Sweden and just had them reproduce mm-hmm. black people with black people from the blackest. Mm-hmm. In about 10,000 years, they would be blonde, blue-eyed, and white, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. You put these white guys in, in the, the tropical clime, and for 10,000 years interbreeding, they will ultimately evolve to dark skin mm-hmm. and dark eyes and dark hair because yeah. of environmental influence. And so, really, there's mm-hmm. no difference. 10,000 years in the sun or not in the sun, you know? Yeah. Yeah, really, we're all from Africa, you know, exactly. in the beginning of man, mankind, you know? And and now that we have these awarenesses, we, we have a blooming of people who are anti-Darwin. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's unbelievable <laughs> how many people today, compared to in the past, are embracing these ideas that are against evolution when we have more proof than ever. Yeah, just a denial of science is, yeah. like science is another uh, theory you can accept or, or disaccept, you know. But totally. Very disturbing. It just really blows me away. Anyway, but that's, that, those are the reasons why I do what I do is because, you know, somehow we have to show in some way that not everybody thinks this way, not everybody feels like that, yeah. and there are forces and movements against that thinking coming out of these times and places, and I'm one of them, you know, and that's one of the reasons I do what I do. And I recognize that, you know, I, I forego the idea of, of making lots of money with my skills, buying a house or anything else. I'll never buy a house. I'll never have those luxuries, but I live a great life because it's mm-hmm. fulfilling. In, in the last decade, or you're, you've gotten more notice than ever, actually. Yeah, finally. I, th- I think it's the, uh, the current work. The current work, like, I, I always had a, not always, I, I had for a long time a, a local reputation. But my reputation had more to do with being the guy who never gives up. <laughs> the guy who, against all odds, will do what it, what's in his head and put it out there and show it and and if I can find a brave enough art dealer, you know, they'll show it and not sell anything and we all go broke together. And that's been the trajectory of my career pretty much. And and but once I switched over to using real guns and real bullets and real human bones, even though still we have a, a, a lot of people who say I can't live with it, people really started to take notice and people really responded. And I have a feeling, you know, it's like people would come up to me at an opening and say, did these guns really kill people? And I'd say, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. They were used in a war, and they definitely killed people. Um, That, you know, and then having real human bones. I mean, if you use plastic bones, who's going to 
be afraid of a plastic model or yeah get... well let's step back and describe these works a, a little bit the, the reliquaries you did are are the ones that have really gotten a lot of attention in the, yeah. in the last decade and uh, they're uh, describe them well interestingly I, I I was at a transition point in my career I recognized that my bronzes were just not selling and as much as I thought my African series was a brilliant series of work that were excellent on the artistic level you know in terms of figure and sculpture uh, I thought conceptually and with all the layers that they're a real favorite of mine I guess they got notice in, in juxtapose uh, juxtapose did an article yeah yeah, yeah. anyway I, I wasn't being successful I needed change and I needed to find a new way to express myself and I had carved wood and stone way early in my career experimentally and I thought I'm, I'm I had accumulated a huge amount of wood and and seasoned it and um, I thought I would carve and so we, my wife and I went to Italy and this was in 94 I believe and Italy's a, a sculpture a country of sculptors I mean it's it's the three-dimensional capital for me. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a place of, of great craftsmanship uh, still yeah. and, and all. And so I wanted, I, I've always wanted to go to Italy anyway, but I wanted inspiration sculpturally. And I thought I was going to come back and carve. And so I wanted to go look at all those carvings in stone and wood and whatever and, that are all over Europe. And uh, and I thought, you know, Italy is it. So we, we went for a month and looked at lots of art. I came across lots of reliquaries. At first, I wasn't paying attention to them at all. Yeah, because they were just religious even, sculptures to me. Just, just to stop for a second, uh, reliquary. Uh, I think maybe we should define that word. Uh. Reliquary is the housing of a relic, and the relic, in religious terms, has to do with anything that had to do with Jesus Christ or any saints, anything they touched, wore, or any part of their body. Literally, they would cut a saint to bits <laughs> and spread them out in churches what all an the honor. world for huge money. If you take it in perspective uh, of the most collectible things of that era, and this is from early to middle Christianity on up to, I'd say, the 20th century, early 20th century, they were super expensive and really desirable. When city-states attacked city-states in Italy, the first thing they would go for is the reliquaries. Mm -hmm. Because first of all, because they were holy relics, they were housed in gold and silver and bejeweled uh, housings. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those housings looked like Gothic architecture, sometimes they looked like a casket, sometimes they looked, I mean, they, they looked like a head. And they would have a skull inside of it, you know, a silver and gold head. But they were usually very precious um, materials and very valuable. And so, you know, anytime you go anywhere where anything's really valuable, fakes. Fakes <laughs> come up. And so many, many, many reliquaries are fakes. So, for example, in Europe, there are six churches that have the breasts of St. Bernadette. There are 60 churches that have St. John the Baptist's head. And he wasn't known for having 60 heads. No, no. he wasn't. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I did a lot of research on this, and, and when I, I came across this wonderful book, 
by this woman from Berkeley, ironically, and uh, she went to Europe to find all the reliquary and, and check them out historically. And, and so she wrote a book about her experience. And boy, there was so many fakes. And I found several books that supported those theories. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I play on that too in my series. I mean, I have 20 trigger fingers of Santo Guero. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have 20 different sculptures that I've made and they're all sold of the trigger finger of Santo Guero. And part of the concept has to do with this, this multiples, which has to do with the faking and the, mm -hmm. the unreality yeah. of, of these holy relics. Anyway, to get back to your question, a relic, a reliquary houses the relic itself. And the relic could be anything that touched these holy persons. And so I started my series, well, first let me tell you what happened. I, I was in Florence, Italy, and I was in one of the Medici chapels, and this was underground, and it's kind of a bleak part of the church. There were lots more exciting things to see. They had rooms of reliquaries and all that, but there was this little tiny silver reliquary with a little crystal window in it, and there was a finger. And it still had some meat on the bone, and it was all desiccated, and I was like, wow. And it was an epiphany. I thought, trigger finger. I gotta get guns, I gotta get a finger bone, and I've gotta put those together and make my own reliquary. And I thought I would do one, because I still had the idea I was gonna go home and carve, because I had all this wood I'd prepared for years. So I did the, my first sculpture, and I went, hmm, this isn't, I, I need to do another one. So I did a second one, and then the third one, and I went, okay, forget about carving. This is a loaded, literally loaded uh, concept. And so I went with it. I gave all my wood away. I literally had probably 10 tons, and um, I had tree trunks five feet in diameter that I was going to carve. I was like, get rid of it. I'm not doing it. I'm getting too old for that shit. I'm going to do these reliquaries. And I started just with doing reliquaries. They were smaller and they were housings and, you know, and I was playing on my awareness of religious history and art history. But ultimately I realized, you know, these are, these are all Catholic. That's not fair. You know, Muslims and Jews have the same, the same responsibility as, ever, as the Catholics or the Protestants. I've got to find a way to incorporate all the religions. And so, uh, since Jews and Protestants and Muslims don't generally do reliquaries, although there's a few relics of Muhammad, but you don't touch that. That's truly sacred territory that could get you killed. Um, Jews don't do any of that kind of stuff. And so I, I had to figure out a way to create uh, equal opportunity criticism of all the religions involved in violence. Mm -hmm. And so I, I ended up starting to make architectural temples of the different religions and housing something inside. So for the Jewish um, uh, temples, the synagogues, I, I would put Torah covers. And 
many of them have the Ten Commandments on it. And I thought nothing is a better juxtaposition than a couple of Uzis and the Ten Commandments. <laughs> and so I would do that. And I would have Uzis in every synagogue I make has Uzis, either two or four. And just for general knowledge, Uzi is an Israeli submachine gun. And so it's a beautiful gun and it's an iconic gun. And so it's recognized by most most people. And juxtaposing that with the Torah cover having the Ten Commandments embroidered in gold or silver thread, it's just perfect. It just reads and it, it tells the story. And so um, I've been using Torah covers. Now they're not easy to come by. Mm -hmm. I, I, I go on eBay and then mostly they don't have any. But mm -hmm. every once in a while somebody has them and they, they average about 300 bucks a piece. And some of them are stained and ratty and, you know. How, how large are they? They're pretty big. They're about, I'd say, two, three, uh, 30 inches tall by 20 inches wide or something. Mm -hmm. And they house two big scrolls. Yeah. And the tradition is, when they take out the Torah to read on the Sabbath, um, you know, they'll roll the scroll to the proper place and then they read from there. And it's always covered and then they have these fancy little uh, silver finials that go over. I mean, it's, a, it's all ritual stuff. And um, I decided any r religious ritual object would do. So I started with, with Torah covers, but I've also used uh, tefillin, which is, um, it's like a little box with prayers in it and they wind this leather around your arm and it connects to your head. and and very religious Jews use this every morning for their morning prayers. Uh, you can do it at home or you could do it at the temple. So I've, I've found online on eBay, I found an army issued, okay, how's this for a concept? <laughs> army issued tefillin, the tefillin bag, yeah. army green with Hebrew letters on it. I mean, here's religion and war yeah. combined to the perfectly. Yeah. And so I, I put that inside one of my synagogues and had the tefillin spilling out of the bag and showing the army issued. Uh, and I just thought, this is absolutely perfect, you know. <laughs> Since that's the sort of thing I try to find. Ultimately, within the Jewish faith, I ended up expanding the reliquary series to include religious paraphernalia. And so I make mezuzahs the little ritual object they put on doors. Yeah. That people... Marks a Jewish household, kind of. Yeah. And and it has protective prayers to protect the house within, and you're supposed to mount it tilted toward the interior. And some really religious people have them in every room, every doorway. But basically, most people I was aware of growing up in New York had them on the exterior door coming in mm -hmm. to bless their household. And they come in a million forms. If you go online and, and, and Google mezuzah, you'll see every kind of fancy form or simple form or whatever. I make mine out of 50 caliber machine gun bullets, <laughs> which makes for a, a, a little bit big mezuzah. They're usually more diminutive than that, but this is noticeable. And I cut a window, a little oval window, and I, I put glass in there, and I buy online <laughs> the prayers. And they're supposed to be on, on parchment, handwritten. And some, you can tell, are handwritten. 
and they're not cheap, but you can, you can, you can buy them because people buy housings and then they can buy the prayers separately, put them together and put them up. And so I put the ones I purchase in there. Now I did discover that Amazon has uh, fakes. <laughs> <laughs> Just for the record, uh, they have this company, Christian something objects, and they sell all kinds of religious objects. And I tested it. They were prints. <laughs> and I went and paid the price, and then I, I compared them and magnified them and saw that they were identical prints. Yeah, yeah. And so I'll never order from those people again. But I liked having the real deal because mm -hmm. people really use them you know mm -hmm. I, I have Jewish clients who have bought them and they put them up in their house it's not right. just a, a desk toy <laughs> so uh, but I think they're very attractive and I make a really nice mounting so that it's kind of hidden and floats there on your door but it really speaks to the violent side of the religious experience mm -hmm. and then I make um, vibrators that's a real expansion of the reliquary series. <laughs> what happens is I noticed immediately that my work, you know, I don't have to say this, it's really dense. Uh -huh. You know, it's very heavy stuff. And uh, I realized that you go to one of my shows and it's like a downer. <laughs> I need something to make people smile. Yeah, yeah. So I take all these different size bullets and artillery shells even and I wire them with switches and a wire and plug, and they look just like a vibrator because <laughs> bullets are so phallic. Yeah. And so um, they're a hit. I've sold lots. Huh. Um, you know, they average about $600. Yeah. That's a lot of money for just a bullet. I pay 50 bucks for or something. <laughs> big, big ones. Anyway, it makes people smile. You know, people go, can you really use these? I go, if you want. <laughs> you know, I'm going to follow you home. You can do whatever you want. Yeah. yeah. Well, what, if I plug it in, is it going to vibrate? I said, no, it's going to explode. <laughs> but I, I render them harmless. Yeah. As, but I mean, that goes to the sexual violence of war as well. Absolutely. Uh, there's a sexual just being element. a smile, yeah. No, I, Chris Hedges uh, actually addresses that in his book, Wars, uh, a, a Force, force that, that Gives Us Meaning. meaning. Yeah. Uh, and, and he he mentions the the sexual aspect, the uh, the adrenaline, and the, there's a thrill and, and the addictive quality of that kind of that level of violence. Yeah. And that it's so seductive that ultimately you're addicted. He himself to that adrenaline charge. To, yeah. Uh, and and th th there's a sexual aspect to that whole experience. Mm -hmm. And then there's besides that. The, the rape side of war, which is, you know, the forced sexual violence, which always seems to accompany uh, physical violence, the takeovers, yeah. and power over. And domination yeah. of people, yeah. yeah. So anyway, so I, I make all these different objects now that uh, I've done a synagogue grogger, which is a, a Purim uh, thing wherein when, when they do these readings of the uh, prayers, when this certain name comes up of the bad guy, everybody's supposed to stamp their feet and make noise. And so they have these noisemakers that kids would, you know, they're like rattles you twirl. Yeah, New Year's Eve, the, yeah. Yeah, that kind of New Year's Eve thing. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a tradition that's connected to uh, the Jewish holiday Purim. And so I made one of those with a 30 millimeter 
shell as a handle <laughs> and a, a gear to make the noise with a little metal flap. It's very loud and very good. And, and then a 50 caliber machine gun bullet that swirls around. It's, it works. <laughs> um, I've done Torah pointers out of bullets because they have a tradition of not putting their greasy fingers on the Torah. And so when they're reading, they use these pointers. So I've made them with bullets on the end and then a long rod and a shell on the other end. You know. So what, So when did this work start getting uh, noticed and start getting out in the world? Uh, just a few years ago, I'd say three years, four years ago. Uh, not huge sellers, i got to say. The mezuzahs sell, the vibrators sell, the Jewish paraphernalia stuff, not that readily. Um, but and dreidels. Yeah. The Hanukkah dreidel, the little gambling toy for kids. Mm -hmm. So I make the dreidel in the 19th century style that has bullets in the corners and a big bullet for the center element. And then the, the little block has, uh, it's heavy, everything's heavy metal on this. Instead of uh, Hebrew letters for Gimel and Nun and those uh, letters which indicate you don't win anything or you do, I put yen, dollars, pounds, euros, you know, and Israeli shekels. So that's five. I only can use four. So I vary the European stuff. I sometimes eliminate pounds and use euros. But I always use dollars, yens, and Israeli shekels. Mm -hmm. And then I either use euros or pounds with it. But I, I just want to address the international quality of arms manufacturer and people making money, yeah. gains from armament. Mm -hmm. Whether it flies or not, I don't know, but people are buying them. Yeah, the <laughs> the, the uh, construction using gun parts and bullets that you know was uh, you know started with the, with the reliquaries. I, I was curious when when uh, they started getting wider notice. The uh, well, I would say when I got the museum show, you know, l let me backtrack a little bit. In two thousand six, I was losing my vision. Oh, that's right. And, and I, I was legally blind, and I had detached retinas in both eyes. I guess I thought my career was over as a visual artist for the most part. Mm -hmm. I wasn't terribly upset because I'd had a nice career and I enjoyed myself. I consider my life to be a wonderful ride. And so I was willing to go blind, but I knew that I would continue to do sculpture, but I would switch to clay and I would go back to figures and just do torsos and heads, which I know I could do without eyes. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't that worried get myself a seeing eye dog and have a good pet, you know, I felt fine. But I did regain my vision after three surgeries and um, as a celebration of that, I decided, because for 10 years I had been thinking of this Gothic cathedral, but it was a major commitment. It was going to take every cent that I owned and maybe more. It was going to take well over a year to build and it was a huge project to what take was your vision? What was your vision of this? this? Well, because when I started doing the Reliquary series and started acquiring guns and, and parts, I recognized that flying buttresses from cathedrals looked like guns. And I wanted to do one. And I just wanted to do a structure that included flying buttresses, which meant you got to do a cathedral. So I started researching cathedrals around Europe. And I established for myself that the German and the French Gothic were the styles that appealed to me most. And so I concentrated more on that style. And, and I combined elements 
from Chartres, from uh, Notre Dame, from all the different uh, cathedrals, Amiens, all the different wonderful cathedrals in France and Germany, and taking elements from each and, and translating them into armament. And it took me about 18 months, and I had several assistants, and it cost me more than everything I owned because I had to borrow to complete it. But How large was it? About six feet long and five feet tall and four feet wide. It's a big piece. Yeah. yeah. Weighs about uh, 1,200 pounds. This is a lot of lead and yeah. a lot of steel, you mm -hmm. know? But this, this was my gift to myself. This was not something I thought would sell. This is not something I thought would go anywhere. I just wanted to do it because I got my vision back. I could do this. And I thought, you know, this is my celebration. I've been thinking about it for 10 years. If I don't do it now, I'll never do it. So I just jumped on it and I started this major project. As it turned out, my dealer, you know, she said, well, and now that you got your vision, let's give you a show. And so we booked a show and I had like a year. Mm -hmm. I had already started the piece, but we booked the show. And so I had to create several smaller pieces and stuff around it and whatever. But, I, you know, I accepted and I just worked 90 hours a week. My assistant worked 90 hours a week. And I had a couple of other assistants part time cutting bullets and steel and stuff for me. And mm -hmm. uh, I had no idea it would take me anywhere. But the curator from the De Young Museum, the curator for American art, saw it before the show opened when we had installed because he doesn't like to go to openings because everybody sucks up to you. you know. yeah, yeah. So he, he, he came in early and saw it and he said, I want that for the museum. That was great. Yeah. He thought he had most of the money in the budget. As it turned out, the director of the museum disallowed him from using that money. So then it became a fundraising thing where the gallery was hitting on different collectors to contribute towards buying it for the museum. Ultimately, friend, who's also uh, a couple of doctors, husband and wife are both doctors, uh, they saw all this conflict and they saw this whole thing and they were one of the donors, but they thought it out and said, you know, why don't we just spring for the whole thing? Wow. And so they contacted the museum and, and said that we'll donate the full amount to acquire the work. And so the museum acquired it. So to introduce it to the public, they decided to give me a show. That made all the difference in the world for my whole career because it was my first museum show, you know, as a one-person show. <laughs> uh, it had pieces exhibited in museums before, but not... What a, year is this? 2008. 2008, so how many years have you been working on the you know, sculpture by that point, you know? Oh my God, I started that the Reliquary series in 94. Yeah. So... I was just thinking the whole stretch of your career. Oh, long but, time. You know, 40 years later, yeah. 30 years later, suddenly, yeah, the, the, the big show, well, all the of big a sudden, break. And, and you know, it's a, really, it's a really ironic experience to have a museum show because um, it's great recognition. You know, it's recognition from the museum level of the art community, which is the level I had been aiming at from the start. I was never going to go commercial. Mm -hmm. And that's a great aspect of it. But the weird part is how people start relating to you all of a sudden. So a lot of people in the art community, all of a sudden, they assumed I'm rich, <laughs> I'm successful. I mean, I go to an opening and someone would come up to me and go, oh, I hear you're selling everything you make and that you've got stuff in museums all over the world now and it's like 
what? Who have you, you been talking to? Let me tell you what's really happening in my life. You know, I just borrowed twenty thousand dollars so I can keep working. Uh, you know, like people don't get it. Mm-hmm. But um, all people, sudden, people just always think money comes with the with the yeah. fame or whatever. But also, you know, you know that with notice this work takes a long time to do. It's very very labor intensive, and the materials are very costly, and so the combination makes the work very expensive. I'm ending up with minimum wage or even less. My assistants make more than me, and and so it's that's the reality. Um, I don't get much. I get enough to continue. And but people look at the price list at the show, and they go, "Oh, this is one hundred fifty thousand. This is fifty thousand. That one's forty thousand. This is twenty thousand. They add it all up, and they go, "Fuck, Al's making half, million half a year. million dollars." <laughs> Meanwhile, you know, two pieces may be sold, and I get my checks, and I pay my debts. That's that's for me really important. The minute I get paid, I pay who I owe, because I may need to borrow again. And I know that. And so I always make sure to pay my debts first before I, and second, I buy materials. So I, I get even on the debt front. I buy materials so I'm set for the next year or two for most things. And that means whether the show is successful or not, I can still work. So that's, that's how I use my money. And usually that takes care of it. Yeah. You know, and then it's month to month again. So what's, yeah. what, what's your current work like? What are you, what are you working on, uh, well, on now? The series is evolving. I, I started with reliquaries that evolved into temples themselves. And then now they're evolving into fragments of temples. But So this is enabling me to um, expand the scale. So I'm doing a series of doors. And I've got the first three underway right now. I'm almost done with the three. And I'm really pleased with the development and with the the look, but I, I, I need to make at least six or seven, and then I, I'm considering vandalizing some of them with um, things like swastikas on synagogue doors or a Star of David spray-painted on a mosque door, yeah. or you know, various things like that. Um, I, I want to reflect that aspect of the hate mm-hmm. that comes out of the conflict between religions. And so um, this is kind of an extension of what I started, where I was just taking the religions in general, and now I'm getting a little bit more specific. I think it started with this really big piece I did a few years ago called The Bombed Mosque. And I did a beautiful Iranian-style Shia mosque. It's about five feet long. and it has over 50,000 bullets and shells in it. It is really complicated. And it has a, a gold dome just covered with um, bullet shells, uh, uh, cartridges. Mm-hmm. And in my show in Brussels last year, I noticed that it's getting dull. Uh, by the way, I destroyed part of the dome. It, I made it look like it's blown up and partly burned. And um, it has to do with the conflict between within the religion, between the Shia and the Sunni. And so I put, uh, as a finial on top of the dome, I used a trigger from a revolver as a crescent, which is not a Shia symbol, it's, it's actually a Sunni symbol. And, and so it, it's, it's like the black flag that the Al-Qaeda-related groups would put on things they took over. It's a black trigger as a crescent, which is a Sunni symbol on a Shia temple. 
And so that is the beginning of the concept for me of uh, the trouble between the religions themselves, the way people vandalize out of hate and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So uh, I, I recognize this is going to really make for a no-sell situation. And so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do it and temper it at the same time. And my latest concept is to spray paint it and then badly clean it mm -hmm. so that you can still see it was vandalized, but an attempt was made to clean it. Yeah. Uh, so that's what the, I'm the playing. That can't erase all traces. Yeah. yeah. And, and that also has a symbolic value mm -hmm. of not being able to eliminate this kind of hatred. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's where I'm headed. And, and I'm still developing this, this branch of this series, so you know, who knows where it's going to go. Yeah. But um, I, I'm continuing to take risks and chances and, and push the limits, whether they sell or don't sell. I mean, I, I think the work's important. My main aim is to get people to think about the issues that are in front of them. And so I create juxtapositions and I create questions. I don't even pretend to offer solutions or answers. I'm presenting the problem and I'm hoping that it'll make people think and think about these issues and these hatreds and things like that. That's what it's all about. That's great. And I feel like we got the, the, the note to end it on there. Cool. That's a good ending, actually. <laughs> wow, that was really great. It's wonderful to, to, to really talk about you, about your work and, uh, yeah. and where you've been. It's nice to be able to talk about, you know, with an interested party. Thanks. Uh, you know, <laughs> most artists, they don't get that opportunity. They, they do what they do, and, uh, and they get talkative when they overlap with somebody who has genuine interest. One, two, three, four. That's it for today's show. Check out Al's work at alfaro.com. Catch past shows at soundcloud.com backslash fun to know with the numeral two. See pictures and more information on our guests when you head on over to like the Fun to Know podcast page at Facebook and come on back for the next conversation at Fun to Know. I tell you, so wake up, it's time.